This program was made possible by an independent grant from Beringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, who provided financial support for the program. Welcome everyone to our, our webinar about small military teams deploying to COVID hot zones. I'm Crystal Salazar, our pulmonary critical care physician at Walter Reed, and I'll be moderating today. We have four panelists who have all deployed as medical support in areas in the U.S. overwhelmed with COVID infection. Um, I'd like to have them introduce themselves. Thank you, Dr. Salazar. I'm uh, Commander Mike Cavanaugh. I, in my non-deployed environment, work at Walter Reed and teach at the University of, uh, in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, our role was in a rural rapid response team of which I served with Dr. Zeman. My name is Commander Zeman. I'm trained in pulmonary and critical care medicine. I serve when I'm not deployed as the physician deputy director for Walter Reed. Hey, good afternoon. This is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Hostler. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician as well, uh, currently assigned at Fort Bragg, North Carolina at Womack Army Medical Center. Um, and I went to uh, South Texas with the Urban Augmentation Medical Task Force 16, an Army team. Good afternoon, I'm Captain Sean McKay. I'm also a pulmonary critical care physician currently assigned to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, for those of you that are tuned in, our panelists are gonna start off by sharing some of their thoughts about their experiences after their slides, we're gonna open up to panel discussions and questions from all of you tuned in. Um, so I'll be monitoring the chat box along the way, collecting questions as we go, um, and the questions during our open panel session. Um, I just wanted to start off with a disclaimer. So we are active duty military, but the opinions and the assertions that we're gonna talk about here do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the US military health system, the Uniform Services University or the Department of Defense. Next slide, please. And here are our panelists. And if, I'll turn it over to Dr. Kavanaugh, who's gonna be giving an overview of the stateside military deployments in support of COVID-19 response. Thank you, Dr. Salazar. It's very much an honor to be here. So um, as mentioned, I'm gonna be discussing the role of the US military in COVID response. Uh, this has been one of the most rewarding deployments in my 19 year career. We were able to provide support. My personal team with Dr. Zeman was providing support at a small rural hospital called Star County, which was on the Texas-Mexico border. Uh, next slide, please. So traditionally, when we talk about military deployments, it's based on a trauma strategy. We've divided up into five different echelons, also known as roles, which go to varying degrees of surgical and ICU capability. Role one is typically an ER only, stabilizing ship, again, talking in a surgical capacity. Two, they're gonna have surgeons and they're not gonna have a true ICU. They're typically gonna have extended field care, ability to provide critical care for an extended period of time. And then I want you to actually focus on this role three or echelon three. This is a very capable, either hardened structure hospital or tented. But if you look at it on the army side, they have the ability to create these combat surgical hospitals, which can stand up a rather reasonable surgical and ICU capability with a 248 bed patient capacity. The Navy side has both expeditionary medical units. These are tented organizations that stand up and roughly about 450 personnel and they can create a 150 bed hospital, not overnight, but over a week or so. And then we also have our hospital ships. Echelons four and five are major medical centers such as in Germany, Langstuhl or back in the US. Next slide, please. So, our first round of COVID responses were very much staying on that echelon. And if you look here, this is that echelon three level is how it was first addressed back in March until approximately May. In New York, a lot of press, a lot of people are very aware 
of the comfort going into New York Harbor and providing care. There were a couple of barriers to this. So one of which is there's a huge infrastructure to actually keep a ship of that size afloat, to actually feed everyone, to do the patient admissions. Over a thousand people were involved in this package to provide care. They saw approximately 185 people. Towards the end, they got into a rhythm, but initially there were challenges. It wasn't designed to be a COVID mission. It was designed to augment and offset some of the other medical in New York City. As it turned out, it ultimately developed into a COVID support mission. The Mercy is its sister ship that did a similar idea in Los Angeles. The other thing, and many people are very aware just through the news, that the uh, Jacob Javits Center, it's a convention center in Manhattan, was supported by two major army hospitals. So the 531st Hospital and the 9th Hospital Group came down. The Navy Reserves also provided significant support with something called an expeditionary medical force. So these are those large roll three capacities. They built up an alternative care facility. They basically built a mini hospital in the middle of a convention center. And that's what we talk about with this alternate care facility plan. Javits Center saw roughly a thousand patients by its stand down on one May. Similar patterns were done in Seattle with the 627th hospital center. Um, and they had a 250 bed capacity, again, on the alternate care facility plan. Next slide. So all of us on the line today are talking to you about our experiences in South Texas on the Texas-Mexico border. We went away from that alternate care facility plan and we went into more of an embedded model. Why did we do it? Why was there a need? If you can see here, going from a June to a July, they were roughly getting in Texas about 3,000 cases per day and it exploded to over 15,000. The county we were specifically in had roughly five, six, seven cases per day and then it went overnight to 150, 170 with the corresponding admissions and ICU admissions going up. Their capacity was overwhelmed and their capacity for ICU was overwhelmed. So with any support from the military, the governor of a state has a lot of power here. The governor has to actually request assistance from the federal government. So they'll talk to FEMA. FEMA will provide its support such as a DMAT team, Disaster Medical Assistance Team. But then FEMA, and the with the governor's request, talk to the Secretary of Defense and that authorized Title 10, which means active duty military forces to go into their state and provide support. So it's not necessarily an overnight thing. It actually is a lot of responsibility from the governor to ask. Um, next slide, please. So if you look at the state of critical care in the US, so on this slide, you're gonna see Blue, which is any county in the country that has ICU level bed capability in that county. Yellow is a county that has hospitals, but no ICU level. And as you can see by the gray in South Texas on this pop-out, there are several counties on the Texas-Mexico border that actually have no hospital capability and they need to travel. So this is a breakout, my little stars here and the RRTs are where we supported. So there are approximately 10, if you count San Antonio, 11 supported areas during this time period. So Dr. Hostler is that second blue arrow, if you see in the bottom, it says four UAMTFs plus an ACT. I didn't wanna make four stars, but his team was working in that region. And then my team was doing a different type of team with the RRT and those were along the border itself. Uh, next slide, please. So we're military without a chain of command. What is the military? So if you look on the right, these are the combatant commands of the world for the US military. So many of us have deployed in a traditional deployment pattern where we've 
gone to Afghanistan or Iraq, and we leave our traditional command. If you're at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, you go to Iraq and you fall under United States Central Command, U.S. CENTCOM. In this case, we were in the United States, but we left our Fort Braggs or our Walter Reeds, and we went and we fell under NORTHCOM, still a combatant command, and specifically, we fell under Army North, who is Lieutenant General Richardson, was our big boss. We tried to move rather quickly. So before it even became a medical unit in charge, there was something called Task Force 52. They then turned over to 46. But task force are designed for natural disasters or any type of disaster. We have these in place as our rapid response for something like a hurricane. Well, this natural disaster happened to be COVID. So in this case, we went in under the task force and then they actually stood up out of thin air, a new medical brigade called 62nd Medical Brigade. All told, there were 740 troops between Army, Navy and Reserves and Guard in South Texas providing support at these locations. Next slide, please. So one of the setups, Aurora Rapid Response Team. It was a seven person team, one ICU physician, five ICU nurses, and one uh, respiratory therapist. The goal of this team is to integrate. We're small, but we're also able to be there fast. Within 48 hours from call to being in the hospital, we can be there. We get on a plane, we check into a hotel, and we show up at the hospital. We don't have to have the large footprint. We don't create patient admissions. We don't have to feed either the patients or ourselves. It's very quick to get there. Next slide, please. Others, and Dr. Hostler will be talking about his experience under a urban augmentation medical response team. Larger team, the Army piloted this, 85-person team. So with the rural rapid response, we went into much smaller hospitals and essentially, in some cases, set up ICU-level care out of a traditional ward. Here, these larger units went into busier medical centers that were still overwhelmed on their capacity and either did integration into their system or maybe created the Army-specific ICU team. Another team that was providing support was the ACT, acute care teams. This was not designed for the ICU level. They were designed to do ward level care. So that was a 44 person team, as you can see, two family practice, two IM, as well as some uh, nurse practitioners and two CRNAs. And they were again, uh, providing a step down level slash ward level. Next slide, please. And going outside of our role in the uh, national assistance, humanitarian assistance, there are some other deployments that have occurred with COVID and that has to do with us having to protect our own troops. So many of you have seen that unfortunately over 1,200 of 4,000 people on the Theodore Roosevelt actually were infected with COVID. During that period, they had the port side in Guam and one sailor actually did pass from COVID. Of significance, there have been many deployments to try and get higher levels of care out at sea. So that has changed our dynamic, still a work in progress. As well as you can see, there is a new paper in the New England Journal on the support provided to the Marine Corps at Paris Island. Of significance, Marines can't stop being Marines. Marines can't stop training Marines. So infectious disease teams have gone down to support them in a quarantine and test pattern that has supported their ability to continue with training. That's all I have at this point. I'll be happy to talk in the discussion period, but I'm gonna turn it over to uh, Dr. Zeman, who will go forward from here. Thanks, Dr. Kavanov. I'll take the next slide, please. My name is Commander Zeman. I'm the pulmonary critical care doctor who also works at Walter Reed. Uh, this is a picture of where we were working at to set your compass. For the next couple of minutes, I'd like to be talking about um, patient care in a limited resource environment and how you make decisions about who gets what resource um, and how we made those decisions to help uh, some of the small community hospitals decide what to do during this current COVID surge. 
So as uh, Dr. Kavanaugh said, uh, we're the far too left providers in this picture. We're working at Star County Memorial Hospital, which is a hospital that's a community hospital on the border between Mexico and Texas. Normally, it's a, mostly a conscious sedation procedure hospital with limited board and OB capabilities uh, for ward patients overnight, but no ICU patients or no ICU capabilities. And we were tasked with the FEMA nurses that you see pictured here to set up a 30 bed ICU through which we treat about 190 COVID patients, um, more than half of which met ICU criteria be high flow nasocannular intubation with a 91% survival rate. So that's to set your compass. I'll take the next slide, please. So one of the oldest concepts for the military providing practice in a limited resource environment is that of battlefield triage. You take your patients and divide them up based on severity of injury, and you use your resources targeted towards those with acute or life-threatening injury while you wait on people with minor injuries, the tier three uh, category of, of patients, to say, if they get worse, we might give them blood products or may spend more of our time with them. Whereas if they're already bad or have acute injury, acute uh, risk of losing a, their limb or their life, then we'll spend more resources on them. In the trauma setting and for MASCALs and on the battlefield, the biggest uh, resource that's limited is the provider's time, the time of the, the doctor, the care team, the hospital corpsman to actually treat and assess the patient. But there are other things like blood products that are also limited. On the battlefield triage, one of the tenants is if somebody has a non-survivable injury or a catastrophic injury, um, you are trying to save as many people as possible. So you do not transfuse somebody 20 units of blood uh, if they still have a 95% chance of dying after receiving that blood because you have been ignoring uh, you know, four or five tier one patients that might all survive with only getting transfused four units of blood. So one of the tenets of battlefield triage is that you're trying to save the greatest number of patients with the resources that you have that are limited or that utilitarian greatest good for the greatest number of people walking off the battlefield. And one of the most difficult parts of that triage is then drawing that line and deciding when is an injury so catastrophic that you should not be using your limited resources on that patient. Next slide, please. So similar to the battlefield for, you know, mass casualty and trauma, you can also look at COVID and a COVID surge in a hospital as a battlefield triage scheme, except instead of the limited resources being blood products, the limited resources might be ventilators, ICU beds, monitoring, ICU nurses, physicians time, or even these disease modifying agents that you see here. There's kind of three categories of, uh, agents that have been shown to have a positive impact in a COVID patient's uh, clinical course, including antiviral agents, which you see here, anti-inflammatory respiratory support. So you can actually re-triage your patients instead of using a battlefield scheme, but actually use a scheme where you're looking at severity of injury based on COVID. And the two biggest prognostic factors for COVID severity is oxygenation on admission, as well as a clinical severity score like the Apache or the clinical frailty index, which you see here. So patients that are admitted with high levels of oxygen uh, do worse as well as those with clinical severity scores or clinical index severity scores like the Apache score are being worse. Instead of dividing up your time, or your blood products, you start to divide up your rare interventions that can make a difference. Things like remdesivir, monoclonal antibodies, interleukin inhibitors, or ventilators. And that's what becomes the outcome of your battlefield triage uh, categorization. I'll take the next slide, please. So the biggest question still remains, how do you draw that line when a patient's too sick or expectant for a specific resource to not give them remdesivir anymore, not give them a ventilator, not put them in the ICU, try and switch to palliation when the system is overwhelmed and you have a limited resource, either in manpower, equipment, staffing, or your medications. And the three things you have to do to build your triage script and the three things that we did is consider what's the benefit of the intervention that you're doing. So what does remdesivir do? How much does it help? where the patients it's used in best. The natural history of the disease, when should remdesivir be used? Is, is the patient in the antiviral phase of the, or is the patient in the viral phase of COVID? Is the patient in the inflammatory phase of COVID? Are they in the fibrotic phase of COVID? And what's the chance of failure that's specific to the patient, including the patient's own comorbidities or disease complications? And what you get when you do that, next slide, please is a triage script that's specific to a limited resource. So 
This is our triage script for remdesivir that Commander Kavanov and myself used. When we showed up to this hospital, we had six doses of remdesivir to give. And as I said, we had a throughput of 200 patients. So we had to be very careful to select the patients correctly to make sure that we weren't giving remdesivir to folks that would not benefit from it or folks that didn't need it on the other side of the spectrum. So going on the left-hand column, you see um, prognostic uh, factors for remdesivir use that were taken from the ACT2, ACT Act 1 and Act 2 uh, subgroup analyses, including age, oxygen support levels, comorbidations, disease complications, and again, some sort of clinical severity index. Doesn't have to be the clinical frailty score, it can be the Apache. Lots of the clinical severity indexes have actually been validated in COVID predictions. And what you see here is our triage scheme. So, positive predictive values for us was patients that were lower in age, time of admission, we wanted them to be in the antiviral phase. So those first five days, preferably those first three days in the ACT-1 uh, um, subgroup analysis, moderate oxygen support. So we wanted them to be on high flow nasal cannula or BiPAP before we gave remdesivir, but we didn't want them to be, them to be admitted when they were ventilated. That was a point against them. That was too far gone. We also didn't want them to be on nasal cannula. They might not ever progress to needing remdesivir. Minimal comorbidities and disease conditions, as well as the disease severity index. So with clinical frailty score, that's a pretty moderate disease severity. Six to nine is the highest that you can get. And so for the sake of, uh, next slide, please. For the sake of anybody who's in a small community hospital and maybe facing a COVID surge of patients, I'm gonna go through uh, one example of each of those categories that we discussed to tell you how we triaged, how we made our triage script for each of these things. So from Desivere, looking at the data, we know that there is a trend towards mortality in the ACT-1 and 2 trials that it hasn't reached statistical significance. There's a faster recovery trend as well. Subgroup of the ACT-1 showed that it works best in people that are, have moderate oxygenation needs but prior to intubation and in the first three days of admission. So that's where our triage script comes from for the O2 support needed as well as the time from admission. In terms of complications, we had three cases of fulminant liver injury during the 200 patients that we saw for the COVID. Two of them were given remdesivir and there has been an associated drug injury from remdesivir. So be wary of that, especially be wary of remdesivir and the use of acute kidney injury. Um, no one knows its impacts on the, the liver when it's not being, uh, when it's building up because of kidneys are not filtering it as well. I'll take the next slide, please. Convalescent plasma, the other antiviral um, medication, either using convalescent plasma or MABs as activating the passive immune system, getting those immune globulins in to fight the virus. Um, the first data for convalescent plasma came out of China early in March. They showed that the virus cleared faster from the nasal pharynx swabs at seven days. Joyner et al. published a um, large observational open label trial of about 35,000 patients, not published, excuse me, submitted for publication in August, which showed an absolute mortality reduction at 5% at, uh, at 30 days, if given within the first three days. Things that did better, higher IgG titers in the convalescent plasma and given earlier in the disease course uh, were both... Um, associated with better outcomes in the joiner uh, data pool. Uh, the ideal IgG titer, as we know, is 1 to 160 um, for measuring the, for measuring the uh, COVID-specific uh, IgGs. So for our disease script, you see it on the right for convalescent plasma. Uh, we gave it to most folks, tried to be early in. Three days was the earliest in the Joiner uh, et al. study that uh, should benefit uh, any level of oxygen support, any disease complications. Of course, you know, at a small community hospital, we have no way of measuring the titers or no way of knowing the efficacy of the plasma that we were giving, but most of the patients that we gave uh, that came in got plasma from us. Next slide, please. And then dexamethasone for an anti-inflammatory. The disease script is pretty simple. We should all be comfortable with giving dexamethasone uh, in COVID patients. It's both been shown in a meta-analysis in the American and the British literature to be efficacious at reducing mortality for anyone on oxygen. Um, so pretty much all folks that were admitted to our ICU got dexamethasone uh, on arrival had lots of uncomplicated blood sugars. We had lots of untreated diabetes at the border. Um, and that's obviously something that we're all aware of. Next slide, please. One of the biggest discussions in a limited resource environment is what to do with respiratory failure. Who do you intubate? Who do you not intubate? Who do you leave on BiPAP? Who do you leave on high flow nasal cannula? And when we're going back to our triage script and our battlefield triage scheme, one of the things we have to consider is the natural history of COVID. So 
early respiratory failure from COVID is usually due to cytokine surge causing leaky capillaries, translocation of white blood cells coming to fight off, as well as pulmonary edema. It's usually in the early respiratory failure, it's usually acute hypoxia that responds well to positive pressure. Um, also, as a side note, obviously in the picture here, you get that transthoracic gradient of increased blood flow in your zone three of the lung, which means more blood means more cytokines, means more lung damage. And you'll be a believer in prone if you start proning these patients uh, in COVID to get that VQ matched back up with that zone one uh, lung that's preserved from the lack of cytokines floating around there. Late respiratory failure in COVID is usually a burnt out phase of ARDS. People will be intubated or on some sort of ventilator support for two, three, four weeks, and they'll end up having minute ventilations of 40 to comp compensate for all the dead space they have from organized pneumonia and other fibrotic pneumonia after ARDS for a long time. That tends to be a hypercapnic respiratory failure uh, if it's failure after day 10, and you, you'll see the patient doing lots of minute ventilation either in the room by your counts or whatever BiPAP machine they're on. Next slide, please. So our triage of when to intubate and what to intubate um, basically depended on whether or not they're in that hypoxic early phase that was due to pulmonary edema and cytokines, and we thought they would respond to positive pressure well, or if they're in that late fibrotic phase. In general, we tried to early bait for in early, we tried to intubate, excuse me, for early hypoxic respiratory failure day one through six. Um, and then for the late phase, we would actually have these people on the BiPAP or positive pressure jail they were able to create the minute ventilations way better than we were. Found if we intubated those patients and they were breathing, you know, with minute ventilations, 30 liters, 40 liters, that they would instantly become acidotic and we would have, uh, they would be coding from their pH within, you know, two hours. So if we couldn't artificially easily create the minute ventilations, then we would leave them on the BiPAP in that kind of late phase. So for our folks who to intubate, uh, we swung with early hypoxic respiratory failure as most of our events. And then we let the hypercapnic respiratory failure kind of ride out even more than the permissive hypercapnia that's described in the literature, based on the fact that when we initially got there, we had nine vents, 12 vents, three of them broke, and then we got our four motor vents up and running. Next slide, please. So really, um, you know, conclusions for about treating patients in a low resource environment, you have to for hospitals that are about to face a COVID surge or are facing COVID surge, it's important to identify what resources there are and talk about how you're going to use those resources prospectively. What we did, not so formally as what I've written down here, is but we made a triage script that says, this is how we're going to use our remdesivir, this is how we're going to use our dexamethasone, this is how we're going to use all these disease-modifying agents, including our nurses, including our beds, including our vents. And it's best if you can decide that with your team beforehand, so when you're in the heat of the moment, you're not making any snap decisions. Or, or team members are all on the same page as well. If there is a gray zone like uh, anticoagulation or ventilator use or anything else, I'm not saying that we have the answers. I'm saying that you should decide based on the literature as best you can how your hospital and how everyone in your hospital is going to operate in that gray zone. And then for us, there was three landmark trials, two of them that came out kind of um, in Medrix uh, for uh, while we were deployed and changed how we were practicing in the field, including that joiner article on convalescent plasma. So I think it's important to be deliberate about your review of the primary literature of COVID as you are in your COVID surge. Now, whether or not to be an early adapter as early as we are when it hasn't been you know, peer published yet, that's up to you. And I'm not saying we did it right, um, but uh, things to consider uh, for when you're using, uh, when you're facing a surge in a low resource environment. With that, uh, it's my pleasure to turn it over to Dr. Hostler to talk about integration of staff. Thanks, Dr. Zeman. Uh, so in addition to serving here at Fort Bragg, uh, I had the privilege of deploying to McAllen Medical Center, a larger referral center about an hour south of where Dr. Zeman and Kavanaugh were, uh, with UAMTF-16, um, some of whose members are pictured here on the screen. We're an Army medical team based off of the field hospital concept, but we didn't bring tents and trucks, we brought staff. And I appreciate this opportunity to talk to you all today about how important staff are in the response. Next slide, please. Uh, I'd like to open with some words from one of my own inspirations, General Eric Shinseki, who was the chief of staff of the Army when I joined the Army 20 years ago. He liked to say that the Army is not made up of people, the Army is people. That may sound like a little bit of leadership wordplay, and perhaps it is, but I believe it also gets to a really important underlying point for us. Next slide, please. 
Whether you're talking about the armed forces or a healthcare team during a crisis, trained human beings are the most critically limited resource. You can engineer your way out of a machine shortage, you can create ad hoc spaces, but you can't magic up additional expert humans. Next slide, please. Of course, just showing up with people is not sufficient by itself. The team needs to have leaders with a solid framework for their employment. This is an overview of how our commander approached our employment, uh, which I believe is broadly applicable. Whether you're a military team, a state-directed or nonprofit nursing squad, or an overseas relief mission, all these concepts apply. It's important for leaders to know their people and to understand what strengths and weaknesses they bring to the table. It's important to identify and to triage staffing deficiencies and then fill in gaps in the line so that we can interrupt the vicious cycle of care fatigue. After the damage control phase, it's essential to develop a model for staff support where the solution fits the problems, not the other way around. And finally, throughout the mission, the team has to plan for a graceful exit, so we're not gonna be there forever. Next slide, please. This is an overview of the staff that we brought to the uh, overwhelmed hospital system in South Texas. Um, as Dr. Kavanaugh pointed out earlier, each military team was different. This was just mine. Uh, in a forum like this, it's easy for us to focus on the details of which types of physicians and nurses we brought. Uh, but I'd like instead to draw your attention to our multifunctional athletes, uh, the combat medics, the dietary technicians, the behavioral health technicians, and others on our team who didn't necessarily have a directly analogous counterpart in your typical hospital. Um, that's what made their contribution so special. These were young men and women, mostly in their early 20s, who consistently sought to place themselves where the needs were greatest, whether that was assisting with procedures, restocking shelves, or even serving as a human monitoring system, uh, continuously walking from room to room, gathering vital signs for a full 12-hour shift when we didn't have central monitoring. Next slide, please. Um, I think it's well understood that when a military team comes to town, uh, we're going to bring people who are motivated, flexible, adaptable, and committed to accomplishing the mission. And those are all true strengths, but we also have to acknowledge uh, that our teams tend to be very young. There's not a lot of gray hair in Army medicine and nursing, and the same is true for the Navy. This was true for our team as well. Um, as you can see, the majority of our doctors uh, were just a few years removed from residency, and likewise, most of our nurses were only a few years out of nursing school. Next slide, please. Uh, but what they lacked up in longitudinal experience, my teammates more than made up for with energy and mission focus. So these brave and brilliant young men and women had already signed up to serve their country in harm's way. They just didn't know that harm's way was gonna lead them to South Texas in 2020. Next slide, please. Of course, understanding our own people is only part of the job. Even before arriving on the scene, our leaders had to evaluate the staffing deficiencies that we were walking into. Um, it's very common for us to conceive of these deficiencies in terms of the domains and roles that we play in the hospital. For example, we're short nurses or we need respiratory therapists but I'd encourage all of you to think about staffing deficiencies based on the why. There are a lot of reasons for deficiencies in the pandemic and we saw them all. The hospital system we joined had lost a number of staff members to illness, most of them temporarily, but unfortunately some permanently. We'll talk more about care fatigue later and our team even had the, uh, the opportunity to practice through a category one hurricane. Uh, but most pressingly on our arrival, there were staff shortages because of fear and lack of trust in the organization and significant financial disincentives that I believe continue to exist across the country. By that, I mean uh, travel nurses and locum physicians coming into a stressed hospital system and being paid anywhere from three to eight times the hourly rate that the staff belonging to the hospital are paid, uh, which encourages some of the staff to leave and seek uh, more remunerative payment elsewhere. That wasn't a problem that was in our power to fix, uh, but it was one that we needed to acknowledge and work through with the existing staff. Next slide, please. Um, once we identified deficiencies, the next step was to fill gaps in the line. Within 72 hours of arriving to McAllen, the majority of our staff were fully integrated and working clinical shifts. This allowed us to begin to interrupt the vicious cycle of care fatigue. We entered a community where the baseline health of the population was poor and access to healthcare was worse. Uh, where the pandemic had already been raging for several months with poor outcomes across the board and where increasing absenteeism uh, was a problem across all disciplines on the staff. 
the resulting chaos with 15 or more codes a day in a 250 bed hospital and an unrelenting onslaught of illness fed right into this disease burden that started the cycle. By introducing fresh staff, we were able to counter the effects of absenteeism and begin to control the chaos. Next slide, please. There are many different ways to employ visiting staff and there's no universal right answer. Um, as I see it, staff can be directly integrated into their usual roles in the hospital, can form an auxiliary unit to expand the hospital's capacity, uh, or can take on focused responsibilities like performing procedures or responding to codes. Whatever system of support is designed has to fit the problem and it has to be done in a sustainable way. Our leaders fortunately were very attentive to human performance optimization and ensured that there was always adequate crew rest and resources for psychological resiliency to ensure the team could function essentially indefinitely. Next slide, please. Once we were fully operational, our team occupied overlapping roles within that model I laid out. Some of our staff continued to work in directly integrated roles in the pharmacy or in liaison roles with the uh, hospital leadership throughout our two months in Texas. Um, others uh, performed a uh, procedure and code team, which was extraordinarily busy uh, offloading the hospital's organic staff. And we built an auxiliary ward with 20 intermediate care beds and four ICU beds, which provided a surge capacity that could seamlessly close down as the patient population dwindled and our mission came to an end. Next slide, please. Throughout our stay, the team was conscious of the need to build sustainable systems as part of our exit strategy. We worked closely with the hospital executive leadership and the leaders of the local medical staff to identify problematic practice patterns and systems of care and to develop solutions that would work within the constraints of the local system. Most of the time, we implemented those new practices and protocols first in our model unit, which allowed us to demonstrate success and then to gradually withdraw support such that when we left, the hospital and its organic staff could continue that good work. Next slide, please. I'd like to share just a couple final notes before I turn it over to Dr. McKay. Um, when a military team comes to your community, you can trust that we're gonna treat your community as our own and we'll care about your patients like our own. Uh, here we see our staff lining the halls for a dignified transfer of remains for one of our patients, uh, an Army and Marine Corps veteran who succumbed to his illness. Next slide, please. At the other end of the spectrum, we found that the strongest tool to build and renew our resiliency was celebrating our successes. So here's our staff celebrating discharging a patient home after a hospital course that included a week intubated in our ICU. Next slide, please. And finally, um, every one of us was extremely grateful for the opportunity to serve this community. So thank you to the people of McAllen for welcoming us. And thanks to all of you on the line for your time. Dr. McKay, you're on. Thank you, Colonel Hoffler. Um, thank you uh, to uh, Commander Kavanaugh and Commander Zeman. Hopefully they've kind of set the stage as you can see, most of us were going into situations where there were lots of patients and limited resources and limited space. And all of us had to find a way. We chose slightly different ways, but there were basic principles that were same of how to increase our ICU bed or hospital bed capacity. Um, so today I'm gonna to talk about building an ICU on the fly during a pandemic. For the rapid rural response teams, most of us went into a hospital that typically didn't have ICU care. They may have ICU beds, but those beds hadn't been filled with ICU level patients. Most of them were uh, post-op uh, surgical beds for same day surgeries. And so it wasn't just about <clears throat> providing care, but also helping the staff uh, to develop uh, protocols um, as well as uh, ways of treating those patients. Um, and so in a lot of situations, when we got there, we were already in a uh, overrun capacity with limited bed space. And we had to quickly figure out how to create beds, how many beds to create, where to create them. Um, are you going to become just a COVID hospital or are you going to continue to treat non-COVID and COVID? And a lot of situations where we were transferring a COVID patient to a higher level of care was difficult because there weren't many beds available for uh, COVID patients, but there were beds available in the area for non-COVID patients. So a lot of times the decision was made to become just purely a COVID hospital. And then when you are becoming COVID hospital, where are you gonna provide that care? Are you gonna increase your floor or ward capacity 
Are you going to increase your ICU capacity? Or are you going to uh, complete both? And depending on what type of patient you're going to be caring for and what space, there may be different needs. Next slide, please. So one of the biggest things um, that you need when caring for COVID is you need negative pressure. But this is something that can be difficult to do if your hospital doesn't already have negative pressure capability. Most hospitals uh, that were built before you know, 1990 don't necessarily have IC, uh, negative pressure rooms in their ICU. Not all the rooms are negative pressure. There may be one room that's negative pressure or they may have one floor uh, ward room that's negative pressure. So how do you get more negative pressure rooms available for your COVID patients? And then when you look at available spaces where people can practice um, care of critically ill COVID patients, what spaces do you have? Typically, you're looking at things like your emergency room. If you have an ICU, your ICU. If you're looking, if you have a post-op care unit like a PACU, and then sometimes hospitals have pre-procedure units that they may also be able to be converted into spaces that would care for critically ill patients. And then also you have ward patients that you may need to care for. And how do you create the correct space for that? Next slide, please. So this uh, picture was taken from the state of Minnesota's, Minnesota's disaster uh, response plan, but you can see here, it's a mock-up of a room and a room they use in a way to create a negative pressure. And some of the key concepts are, you must have a fan, a way of bringing the air in the room, out of the room, and it must ventilate to a specific space. And a hospital that doesn't typically have a filter system that can handle negative pressure, you don't want to filter that air back into the vent system of the hospital because then you have the potential of contaminating the patients or the staff throughout the hospital. So typically you want to ventilate that air to the outside. If you have the resources to have a HEPA filter on that fan prior to the air being vented to the outside, uh, then you can safely ventilate it pretty much anywhere outside. But if you don't have the ability to have a HEPA filter, which can filter the air prior to leaving the building, then you may want to put your ward on a second floor or a third floor so that <clears throat> when you vent the air to the outside, it has enough space to dissipate so it doesn't infect those that may be walking outside near the building. In the case of uh, the hospital where I was at, the ICU was on the second floor, but it overlooked the staff parking lot. So when we were venting air to the outside, we actually had to close off half the parking lot so that patients uh, wouldn't park right underneath the window where the COVID um, ICU ward was being ventilated from. The other thing you want to um, do is close off any exhaust returns that go to the regular hospital. So you see a picture here of an exhaust return, but that should be taped off so that the air only can be put outside. And let's go to the next slide. So here's a real world example of building an ice, a negative pressure ward by just using fans. So you can see here on the picture on, uh, on your left, you see a fan that has been mounted into a window. And if you look at the picture on the right, you can actually see these are windows uh, on the, it uh, looks like fourth and fifth floor and multiple windows have been knocked out and fans put in place. And this is to create that negative pressure in that ward uh, where they are caring for the patients. Uh, these. Uh, pictures are courtesy of uh, Colonel Hostler. This is the negative uh, pressure ward they created to care for their ICU patients. Uh, next slide, please. So when you talk about space conversion, picking the space to do it is important. And PACUs are great spaces to convert into ICU or step-down units. So the picture on the left shows a PACU before we converted it. And the picture on the right shows a converted PACU. And what are some of the things that we did? Well, one of the things we did, and I'm sorry the picture is slightly blocked, is in the back of the room, you actually see a window has been knocked out and there's a HEPA uh, filter on a fan that's blowing uh, the air outside, creating a negative pressure room. Uh, also, you can see that we put up some barriers. So you know, one of the things that we did in this space is there are a lot of patients that were on um, high flow nasal cannula or on uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation or sometimes they had to be intubated. And so to protect staff, to kind of limit the droplets that were flying around the room, we put up clear barriers so the nurses still had line of sight, um, but um, still provided some protection um, so that uh, they weren't always exposed to droplets continuously. The other thing, uh, uh, though this is great for creating line of sight, it did lead, uh, lend a, la a lack of privacy to the patients that were there. And that is something we didn't necessarily consider when we were first designing the unit, but had to find solutions to create privacy for patients doing uh, normal human bodily functions. 
Um, this in this space, we were able to put in six ICU beds, and then two others. We were able to surge two others when needed. Um, next slide, please. Uh, one of the ways we created negative pressure was making a trip to our local hardware store and buying a lot of plastic sheeting um, and uh, duct tape. And what we were able to do is strategically close off certain hallways um, to allow for uh, the creation of negative, uh, uh, negative pressure. And you might say, well, how did we prove you had negative pressure? So there are kind of two ways you can do it. There's a low budget way and a high budget way. The low budget way is to just do a tissue uh, paper test. And this is basically where uh, where the space that uh, you've created the negative pressure, the door entering that space, when you open that door, you hold a piece of tissue up. And if the flow, if the tissue moves towards the inside of the room, you have negative pressure. So that's a qualitative test, not a quantitative test. The, quanti the quantitative way of measuring your negative pressure will be to call an HVAC specialist if you have one in the area and have them come out and measure. And we actually did that. We actually, after we had created these spaces, we actually had an HVAC specialist come out and measure the negative pressure before we went live um, with the room. Next slide, please. Uh, the last thing I'll talk about is color-coded zones or zones of safety. So one of the things we noticed when we came into this hospital system is that a lot of the staff were testing positive for COVID. And really because there were no barriers between COVID wards, hallways, and non-COVID wards. And so uh, the staff really didn't have um, great practices for donning and doffing as well as areas of safe where they could eat their lunch, use the bathroom, get a drink of water without exposing themselves to COVID. So we created three different types of zones. A cold zone, which only required a surgical mask. And this was a zone that did not have um, um, COVID in it or a direct connection to a COVID ward. There were warm zones. These were zones that were right up next to a COVID zone. And so this was kind of that ante room that you may see um, that you may see in your normal uh, ICU ward where you have a, a, a negative pressure room that has an ante room before you enter um, the, the COVID room. Uh, that is uh, what the warm zone was for us. It was the ante room. And then you have the hot zone. This required full PPE, gown, gloves, um, face mask, N95, um, and um, um, a hair bonnet. And so no one could ever leave from a hot zone to a green zone. You were going from a hot zone to a yellow zone would you, where you would doff your uh, equipment in an appropriate manner. You would uh, clean uh, your, take off your shoe covers, clean your equipment and uh, clean your hands. And then you could go into a green zone and vice versa. No one could go from a cold zone directly into a hot zone. They would go from a cold zone into a, a warm yellow zone where they would don their appropriate PPE before entering the hot zone. Um, the picture on the right is me as we're kind of defining this is going to be a yellow zone where we're going to be doffing. One of the other things that we did is uh, when we got there, people were entering and exiting, exiting the COVID ward from the same location. So the same place they were taking off their contaminated gear, they were then putting on contaminated, putting on what supposedly was uncontaminated gear. And so we made basically as a one-way system where they would enter from one um, area and they would exit from another and there was no backflow uh, channel. And this also helped with reducing um, the infection rate. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so one of the important things and in, in, um, in having a, a ICU ward that's gonna have patients that have COVID would primarily have respiratory failure is making sure there's enough medical gas. And so in a PACU or in a APU, pictured here, you usually have one um, airline, which is in yellow. You have one oxygen line, which is in green, and you have suction. But as much of us know, when you're caring for a patient who has COVID, sometimes you need more than one suction. Sometimes you need more than one oxygen line. And one thing we found out, if you look on the right, you see a picture of a Voxen ventilator. A lot of these uh, were issued to us. These are uh, transport ventilators that were created by Ford um, and uh, we use these, they were workhorses uh, for us. But one of the interesting things about this ventilator is that you can't just turn it on and hook a patient up to it. You actually have to hook it up to an oxygen source for about 10 minutes before it can deliver 100% FiO2. And so uh, when doing uh, an intubation on someone who's transferring from either high flow nasal cannula or from non-invasive pressure ventilation, where they're already on oxygen, 
well, how do you transfer them from the high flow nasal cannula to the ventilator if it takes 10 minutes for it to get to an FiO2 of 100%. And so if you're gonna be doing that, you may wanna have oxygen tanks nearby. So the solution we came up was, is we would put them over on an oxygen tank on their BiPAP or non-invasive while we hook the ventilator into the wall, get it up to 100%, then we would go ahead with the intubation and convert them over to the E2. I, I make a little comment here, next time I wanna go with the Mercedes, I'm a big F1 uh, Formula One fan, and the, as you know, the Mercedes Formula One team built uh, uh, ventilators for the European crisis. Um, and uh, my joke was always that, that uh, next time I'll go with the Mercedes instead of the Ford. Next line. So uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, uh, just real quick, is we talked about um, you know where do you where where do you create these wards? But the I think the other question is where does ICU care begin? Um, when you're talking about COVID. So one thing I think we all noticed is the first day we showed up, I didn't even get to make it through orientation. Uh, as soon as I showed up, um, the hospital had no patients on the ventilator. By the end of the first day, they had seven patients on the ventilator. By the end of the second day, we had 12 patients on the ventilator and all the ventilators were full. And all the available at that time ICU space was full. And so we had patients on the floor that were needing ICU level care, but couldn't receive it. The other thing uh, that I noticed as, as I kept going on during the first week is I was getting a lot of patients who had been seen in the ER a week ahead of time, had been diagnosed with COVID, and at that time had a new oxygen requirement. And they were sent home on supplemental oxygen, but invariably all of them were coming up back a week later with severe respiratory stress requiring intubation. And so one of the things that I did is I met with the ER staff and I met with the floor staff and we got together and we decided, how are we as a hospital system gonna work together to treat COVID? And so what we did is we came up with a protocol for the ER. Maybe if someone comes in with COVID pneumonia and they have a new oxygen requirement, instead of sending them home, can we admit them to the floor? And when they're on the floor, can we start appropriate treatment? Should they be on remdesivir? Should they get dexamethasone? Should we get PT involved to start an aggressive out of bed to chair program and self proning program? And once we did that, we found that the number of patients that were coding and crashing on the floor decreased. And the number of patients that were coming to the ICU in severe respiratory failure that really wasn't um, treatable decreased. And we started seeing improvement in outcomes. So one thing to consider when building your COVID program um, in your small uh, community hospital or in your larger hospital is can you coordinate the care that your patients are gonna receive from the time they enter your hospital system, like the ER, to the floor, to the ICU, and maybe that can help improve some of your outcomes. Thank you for your attention. Thank you so much, Captain McKay. So I, at this point now, I was gonna open it up to questions for the whole panel. Um, I've got some questions here that were brought up in the chat. There's been some curiosity about um, triage and we've mentioned it several times um, throughout these presentations. As military physicians, many of you were trained with a focus on triage upfront. Um, some people are wondering about um, interacting with hospital leadership or even non-military personnel at hospitals, how they um, sort of received the idea of having to triage these scarce resources, whether it's staff or um, PPE. So I can, I can take that. This is Commander Zeman. It's actually an extremely intelligent question and a real um, issue. I don't want to say problem, but issue that came up. Um, one of the reasons why we tried to be deliberate with our use of limited resources was because we need to make sure that the people we were working with, the you know physicians, nurses, and RTs that were either coming from FEMA or were the native staff were all on the same page with how we were using the resources. When we initially showed up, we found that some of the limited resources like our remdesivir doses or our ventilators were um, used on different patients than what we wanted them to, the triage script to be, um, either being patients that were too healthy to get these disease-modifying agents or patients that were doing very poorly and had, you know, already had two heart attacks, hepatorenal syndrome, and, and other complications going on. So 
the the lesson that we took from that, you know, kind of after the first week was that um, when you do have these limited resources and you're coming into somebody else's, you know, home and hospital and this small communities where everybody knows each other and has worked alongside each other and knows the people they're taking care of, um, open communication, transparency, and having a plan before you reach the crisis are all critical, which is one of the reasons why we became so deliberate about how do we as a hospital, not how do we as the military, but how do we all together as one team want to use these limited resources? So it was, it was really a uh, source that we spent a lot of time with and, and it's a very intelligent question. Thank you. small piece to that and resources change and your rubrics change as uh, you either obtain new skill sets or you obtain more of your equipment or expendables. So Dr. Zeman mentioned our initial point, we had the ability to provide six patients from Desivir. That's all initially. As time went on, more production, your number of doses got better. And when that happens, your rubrics are dynamic is why, what I'm trying to get to. You can be extremely strict based on one dynamic, but what if all of a sudden overnight, now you have the ability to treat 200 patients? Well, now you will change your rubric. So you need to be dynamically looking at that. The other thing in terms of uh, resources is human skill set resources. One of the huge things our nursing staff took upon themselves is to train. We were at a center that mostly had med surge level nurses, not ICU nurses. We came in with five ICU nurses who basically taught, here's how you're hanging different drips and pumps and things along those lines so that our limited resources actually got better in terms of our human resource part. Over. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fantastic point, Dr. Kavanaugh, that um, the training and the ability to build resources um, when we have a little bit of staff redundancy uh, was a huge plus for us. And so the need to, uh, to triage and uh, kind of carefully utilize a limited resource uh, sort of faded away over time for us as we built kind of cross-trained uh, redundancies in the staff. Uh, so there are multiple mentions during um, the conversation also about uh, sort of building redundancies and having staff come into an already established system. Um, can you speak a little bit about any sort of difficulties or challenges you may have had integrating into already established systems? Hi, this is Captain McKay. I think one thing that came out in this um, pandemic is there are resources coming from many different places. Um, there are resources that were contractors, civilian contractors that were coming in. There are resources that were FEMA assets that were coming in. And so a lot of individuals had different um, experiences and the guidelines for COVID care are changing rapidly. And so being able to uh, get everyone onto a similar plan uh, developing protocols for how uh, you're going to approach um, was a bit of a challenge. Um, and it did take a, a lot of meetings and really listening to um, everyone's opinion, everyone's experience, and, and coming together to find uh, the solution that fit the situation that we were in based on the skill level that you had. In addition to sort of staff, there's also been some curiosity about supplies. Um, there's been, there are a couple of questions in the chat about um, the PPE you all used and if you reused PPE while you're in these situations. I guess I can take that one as well. Um, this is Captain McKagan. So uh, one of the issues that at least we had is that <clears throat> the PPE was being supplied by uh, the hospital uh, where we were, that was one of the requirements. But it was PPE that we weren't familiar with, specifically the masks, the 95 masks were one size fit 
fits all masks that most of us hadn't been fitted in and didn't fit us correctly. And um, some of us had brought a few N95s in our bag with us, and um, but those ran out pretty quickly. Uh, so one thing we were able to do is to get the Army to issue us reusable uh, half respirators with N95 or P100 filters. And that um, helped everyone feel a lot more safe um, 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 in regards to at least the masks that we were wearing. But that is somewhat of a challenge. Uh, I, most of the time we were supplied with adequate PPE in regards to gloves, um, bonnets, um, face shields, um, um, and, um, and gowns. Yeah, and this is Dave Hostler. So this is a place where our experiences at different size hospitals um, were pretty variable. Um, we, uh, beyond the first few days, did not have difficulty getting resupplied with PPE and the, the community partners that we worked with were fantastic at uh, finding ways to get equipment and supply once we identified a need. Um, frankly, when we arrived, they were operating at capacity and just needed a little bit of help sorting out how to efficient, efficiently manage the logistics. And again, one of our multifunctional athletes, our, a young uh, logistics uh, sergeant was able to help sort that out uh, both externally and internally within the hospital. Um, so a very, very valued member of our team. And Dr. Hostler, you mentioned during your uh, portion of the presentation about creating exit strategies. Can you? Uh, or the rest of the panel uh, describe a little bit more of, about exit strategies you used for the, what probably felt like a long time, but relatively short time that you were in support of your hospitals? Sure, I think um, we recognized going in that um, there was a, an acute problem um, and an underlying chronic problem, right? Uh, so every surge is going to eventually crest and fall off. Um, and so by just infusing staff, we might help to ease the pain during a surge, but we're really at our best when we build capacity for the future. Um, and so from the time that we arrived, uh, our team worked closely with the local leaders to try and identify uh, solutions that would not only get us through the next few weeks, but set the hospital up for success with the next wave, the next pandemic, the next whatever problem that challenged and stressed their system. Um, and again, a place where uh, having leaders who weren't uh, clinically engaged every day and had the, the mental bandwidth to sit down with the hospital CEO, COO, um, and nursing leadership uh, was a, a great advantage for us. Um, not necessarily a resource that you could have on a small team going to a small hospital, but in our situation, it was, it was a, uh, a great resource to have. I think the other thing that uh, we did um, is uh, we helped build capacity, not only by training staff, but coming up with SOPs. So a lot of the hospitals we went into didn't previously have critical care capability or hadn't had critically ill patients. And we worked with the hospital administration and with the staff to develop ventilator standard operating procedures, both intubation and extubation protocols, tube feeding protocols, insulin drip protocols, things they didn't have before, standardized order sets for admitting a COVID patient to the floor versus admitting a COVID patient to the ICU. And then I think we also met with the administration and the staff to talk about, all right, we're gonna be leaving, your ICU physician is gonna be leaving. What do you think you can safely care for here? And what type of diseases should you be trying to um, look towards transferring um, as soon as possible? So all those kind of discussions were had prior to us leaving. So the hospital was in a better position than they were before we got there and uh, could be prepared to deal um, with continued COVID even after we left. They're saying, couldn't agree with them more, both of them, in description of capacity building SOPs. And just kind of as a note, and I'm sure some of you are as well, I'm still in touch with some of the staff at the facility we're at. How could you not be having gone through what you went through? And one of the ER docs and I were uh, texting back and forth recently. 
they're still using the transfer rubric that we wrote for them two months ago as their standard of care. So this is one of the beauties of the embedded process is we go into a facility and in some ways we're still there. So what it sounds like is with these military missions, um, it was a sort of trifold situation for your roles. You were there to provide actual medical care, but also to train up systems uh, and to create um, areas or capacity going forward. So there were multiple things that you were all doing, not just taking care of the extra influx of patients. Well, I wanna thank all of you so much for um, tuning in on, on the internet. I wanna thank our four panelists for sharing a little bit about what sounds like um, a, a busy few months. And I also wanna thank Chess for giving us this uh, forum for us to be able to um, share a little bit about all, all of our experiences. It looks like that is our hour. Um, thank you very much.